out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of musician and writer and a lot more besides. It is Kurt Weiss, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry. Um, was very musically active in the late 70s and 80s with various bands, including the Rock Cats and also Beat Rodeo. But in the last couple of years has written a book titled Stranded in the Jungle. It is about Jerry Nolan's life in music or Jerry Nolan's wild ride, subtitled A Tale of Drugs, Fashion, The New York Dolls and Punk Rock. Anyway, this is the interview. It's good. Thank you, Kurt. Anyway, um, after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Anyway, over to you, Kurt. I saw the Beatles on the, there was this American show on every Sunday called the Ed Sullivan Show. Yes. I think Ed, Elvis was on it in like 55 or 56 and then he exploded. Um, It was like a weekly variety show and the Beatles were on three weeks in a row in February of 64. And that was like, there's so many people of my age, they'll say, I saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show and that was it. I knew that's what I wanted to do. But I was so young, not only was it was that what I wanted to do, I thought they were on every week, you know, it was like <laughs> three weeks in a row. And then when they weren't on, I go, who are these animals? Are the Rolling Stones or Dave Clark? I like Dave Clark Five a lot. So I got a lot of that period. Yes. And then I started, I think it was after I saw Help, which was like 65. I was five and I wanted to learn to play the drums. My sister and I, she's only a year and a half older, started to uh, guitar lessons when we were like four and five. And I couldn't figure it, you know, it was too advanced for me. Frets, I thought they were called Freds, F-R-E-D. <laughs> and I, what is this Fred thing? I couldn't, couldn't get it. But then I, I think it was after seeing Help, I said, I'd like to try drums. And, Ringo. Yeah, and I, I really became like a Ringo f- freak. I mean, I think I have more... I mean, I was very upset when John died and George died, but I think when Ringo dies, that'll really knock it out of the park for me. It'll be very sad. Yes. But anyway, so that, that's about when I started to play the drums. And in America, you know, the top 10 AM radio was great in the 60s. Um, I mean, I'm sure everybody thinks their period was the greatest. But when you compare like the 60s and you had all the great Motown records and Stax Fault records and the Beatles and the whole British invasion, and then, like, you know, in the, in the 70s, before punk, it was like Captain and Tennille and the car, <laughs> you know. And it was so different. It, was, it, was, it didn't seem to have any excitement to it. But, yes, yeah, so you know, I, I did play the drums, started when I was, like, five years old and started lessons and all. And then when I, I was very lucky when I went to junior high, which now they call it middle school. I'm not sure what they call it in England when you're about 12, 13. Right. It's kind of, yeah, we go up to the secondary modern or I don't know, comprehensive or yeah, that's where you start to make your choices yeah. for yeah. things called O levels probably. And then okay. you have your A levels and then you go for a degree. So yeah, that was that kind of age. Yes. Yeah, sort of pre-teen really, isn't mm-hmm. it? Yes. And that's when they had, at least the New York school system seems to have enough money for bands, concert bands and jazz bands and they were kind of, you know, I didn't always enjoy the music, but it forced me to learn a lot of things and to play with other people. And, you know, there was, like the, I did like glam 
a lot. I think they called it more glitter in the States. Right, okay, um, we called it glam rock. Yeah, but I really, I think I liked Slade the most. I saw them twice uh, and when I was like 13 and 14. I mean, they didn't come to the States often, but I caught Slade both times. And Mott the Hoople, I loved Mott the Hoople. Right, Dale Griffith. Right. Oh yeah, yeah, Buffett. And, um, you know, and then, and then I discovered Bowie and Lou Reed, and then you start going backwards. Just like with the Beatles, if you get into the Beatles, you start listening to Chuck Berry and Carl Perkins. Like with Bowie, you find out what he was into and you start listening to Lou Reed. Um, and, you know, without boring you with every moment of my life, uh, I did try to, I went to the Berkeley School of Music, which, some people think it's related to Berkeley, Berkeley College in Northern California, but no, it's this guy named Lee Burke who started a, a, a school. And it was mostly jazz. And I really just had to force myself to pay attention. I really realized I did not like jazz that much. I wasn't like passionate about it. Yeah. Put it that way. And and friends of mine started to see, you know, Patty Smith and Blondie, and it was reading all this stuff in, in the in the trades. Um and my birthday, it was my 18th birthday, which at that time in December 77, you could officially drink. You were legally allowed to drink at the age of 18. And so I, I was, there was, there was this bus I would take home from this horrible job I had in college, uh, you know, cleaning tables in a restaurant and washing dishes. And between that and this house I lived with like nine students, there was this club in Boston called, um, the Paradise. And that night, there was this guy, Elvis Costello, playing. Right. His first tour. And, you know, I, I often think if I was born two days earlier, who would I have seen? You know, whoever <laughs> just happened to be playing it. And I saw it, and it just blew my mind. I saw him and the attractions, and I, it was very much like that excitement of, of British rock in the, in the early, you know, the British boom at uh, the mid-60s. And that was it. I just started to really get into punk and new wave, as they were calling it. And I, luckily, I, the restaurant I worked in was right next door to this club in, in Boston called The Rat, or The Rath Skeller is really what it was, but people just called it The Rat. And it was kind of like CBGB's. And they had, a, in New York, and they, the owners of the two clubs had a deal with each other where they would alert each other to good bands Right. So all the like the Boston bands would get a chance to play New York and the New York bands would get a chance to play in Boston. So I got to see the Dictators and the Cramps and um, and even in the bigger club, the Paradise, you know, Talking Heads were coming through and the original Ramones. And so I, I got to see all those bands, 77, 78. And it was just as exciting to me as the Brit explosion of the mid 60s or like glam in the early 70s. And that was it from then on. I said, I, I need to, you know, get out of this stupid jazz school and play. Rock yes. And roll. So do you I think came to it, New York, came back to you, New York. Do you think um, if you'd been a bit uh, born a bit earlier, like, you know, David Bowie, because I know whenever he and Lemmy, they were the same age from Motorhead, were asked their first, you know, their musical influence, they both used to say Little Richard. And then they'd always talk about the beat writers and the beat generation. And if you like, you know, Carol, Kerouac mm -hmm. and Ginsburg, you had to like jazz, regardless if you like jazz. You just yes. had to be a jazz dude, didn't you? So I just wondered if, in a way, because you probably were a little bit, um, you'd slightly miss that kind of let's all be beat, beat mix for a day. Yeah, or, or. I, I didn't. 
um, I, I wasn't drawn to that. You know, the jazz of like the, the mid to late seventies was all this sort of, um, I suppose it was weather fusion, a lot of fusion stuff. Yes. And like all, like a lot of, uh, electric piano people playing a lot of notes you know yes. the chords were never just like a simple triad it had like 18 notes in it and um i just thought that that stuff just sounded like watered down you know funk it i really suppose it was that all, interesting and it also had a little bit of the music to, oh, to it yeah. it was kind yeah. of elevator music wasn't it you know i mean a lot jazz. of i think there were a lot of guys who had been doing it who had been struggling to play straight ahead and purest jazz and they just said, I'm tired of this struggling. I'm going to make some money and good for them, you know. Um, yes. To me, it's like when, like the first rock and rollers, when you, if you interviewed those guys in their bands, they were all people that wanted to play jazz. Like all the guys in who were like in the New Orleans bands that played with Little Richard, Fats Domino, and even like the guys 10 years later who were in Motown, they were all frustrated jazz players. And I think that's why they took the creativity in jazz and applied it to something much more simple like rock and roll or rhythm and blues to get something really creative and fascinating. Yes. So when did you make your move to, did you then move to dear old New York quite soon? Well, I was from New York. I was born in New York, went there 77, 78 for college, hated it, came back the end of 78. And um, I started to, I, I remember seeing the Sid Vicious band group and maybe that, that may that was probably the first time I saw Jerry Nolan live. Yes. And I had seen Joe Hansen in Boston a couple of times, once opening for Blondie, and then like three months later, he came back as the headliner. And he had Sylvain in his band. And that first Joe Hansen record was really great. And they were so exciting. And they played a few Dolls songs. So then I went and bought the first Dolls album. I had the second one, but I was not crazy about it. And then I got into it and I saw like the connection between that and punk rock Oh, they, they, that they preceded it by a couple of years. So anyway, I came back to New York and when um, Sid was playing, it was, I knew it was going to be Arthur Kane and, uh, and Jerry Nolan from the Dolls. I said, wow, if it's going to be anything like Joe Hansen, this is going to be great. And they were really awful, I thought. I just thought they were so sloppy and under-rehearsed. And Sid was, you know, a catastrophe. He was a mess. He really was. He was somebody who would just play, like, on his back, you know. Really like a lot of what Thunders could be like on his worst night, except Thunders could play guitar, and he wrote songs. And, and not only was it this sort of under-rehearsed catastrophe, they were doing all covers, and it just seemed, you know, like a rip-off. And, you know, people yeah. look at it now, and they there's all this mythologizing about oh Sid and you know two members of the Dolls. It was terrible. It really was terrible. I don't care what anybody says now. Yes. It really was terrible. I know. Well, the the whole Sid and and, and as as you sort of mentioned in the book, um, Sid and Nancy were like um, they were walking time bomb, really, weren't they? They were just a disaster. Yeah. But it then was. your own, but then your own musical world. I mean, that's kind of also quite a fascinating story because because obviously, I say obviously it's not really, but you know. It's tricky. I mean, I've seen quite a few documentaries about that whole sort of New York scene in the seventies, where it was almost kind of, it was kind of left to the dogs, wasn't it? And and things weren't looking good. A lot of poverty, a lot of drugs. But mm -hmm. out of that, you know, you had sort of the birth of punk, 
though Johnny Rotten wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't agree with yes, that. Yes. Um, disco and rap, you know, I realise this yeah. is a sweeping statement, but, you know, basically there was three major musical trends that happened in a city that had been sort of pretty well abandoned and at the same time had this phenomenal drug problem. That's the kind of simplistic view that I have from yeah. this area. It's the 30 second version, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll buy into it, I will. Um, I mean, and, cheap and cheap rent, so, you know, that's, you know, lots of people can, can live there and you, you know, can just about get by on very little. Oh yeah, I, I think the first apartment I got in New York maybe wasn't even $400 a month and I split it with a friend of mine who had one bedroom and then I got, I took over a friend's apartment which was like $220 a month. I mean, even in the early 80s, $220 was like nothing. Yeah. And, uh, and it was at the time where she hadn't paid her rent in three months and she wanted to move in with her boyfriend. So we both went to the landlord and said, he'll pay the back rent if you give him the lease. Nobody would do that now. Nobody would do that. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's how crazy it was. Um, yes. So then there's this kind of, I, I, you probably disagree with this a bit, but the sort of the, the so-called psychobilly bit, I don't know if it was called psychobilly there, but there was definitely, you became part of this band called the Rap. Rock cats. Rock cats. Well, I had started. Well, go on. Did you have a question in particular? Or? No, no. Just the, the uh, fact that you you started this band at a period when you know, like you mentioned, there's the punk. Then you had the slightly more sophisticated, edgy music of Elvis Costello and Joe Jackson and people mm -hmm. who who didn't have Mohicans basically, but had very they could play their instrument, write proper songs, and not just fall over. You know, willy nilly. Really, let's face it. There was a kind of a quite a division, isn't there? The the energy of Elvis Costello and those first four albums he did and Sid you know he he didn't have much there was he really there wasn't no. a lot going on no I you know people who knew him say he was a very intelligent person and, but I think once Nancy and drugs took over um that was it I mean Lee Childers um you know he he had said that Sid was very sweet but he he said at, just as Susie Sue was a Sex Pistols uh groupie and i don't think he meant literally a groupie that has sex with them just like followed them all over the place bromley contingent that sort of thing that sid was a, a heartbreakers groupie uh johnny and really worshipped johnny and jerry you know as part of the old new york uh scene i guess you know it's just like america has anglophiles i think britain had certain america files and i think sid was more uh, was more that was more yes. an American family. and it's and, interesting because more I know that Morrissey, who was in the Smiths, was obsessed with new, you know, the New York Dolls, and I know from being in the UK, especially during the eighties, anything that came from New York, from you know, obviously Sonic Youth, but there were other bands who I'm sure weren't that great, but because they were from New York, you know, you instantly liked them because you think that's I've just oh, got sure. a band, that's amazing, I've done it. You know. Barry Jones, you know, Barry Jones, who played with Jerry and the Idols and played with Thunders, and he had worked at the, helped start the Roxy Club in, in London. And he said, like, when they were booking it, if a band was from New York, he said, that was it. We booked them. You know, they, they had the New York cred. And yes. So that's why the Heartbreakers were just accepted open arms. He said. Regardless. So, yeah, yeah, so how did the Rockettes? get together because i know well, that this was put together it was almost like lee um childers was was mm -hmm. the kind of the, the the driving force behind this band wasn't he yes he because yeah he was in london 
with the heartbreakers and he would go out just like everybody went out every night with a lot of times with Gail Higgins, who was the uh, road manager for the heartbreakers. And they would just, they, they went in particular to a night where they were playing some old rock and roll movie, like the girl can't help it or something like that. And yeah, cause it was a big deal then when they didn't have cable TV, they didn't have video on demand where you could just watch everything you wanted or buy a, a no. tape. So it was like a, a, a Teddy boy evening and they didn't, you know, he was an American. He, he didn't know what a Teddy boy was. You know, in Britain, you had mods and rockers and Ted's and punks. Yeah. We didn't really have that so overtly in the States, uh, that, that sort of segmentation and gangs, uh, in a sense. We had gangs, but it wasn't at that level. And so he went to this night and saw these young, good-looking Ted's who looked like people he may have grown up with in Kentucky in the 50s, but very exaggerated. Mm. Um, and he ended up, you know, seeing um, one in particular, Levi Dexter. And he got up. I think that people had realized that Lee and his friend Gail were punks. Because even though he had done it, did his hair in a, in a quiff, it was like still like dyed like punk blue or something. Like the lights went up and people realized, oh, there's a punk within our mist. Yes. And they were starting to throw things at him. And he knew Shaken Stevens, who was one of the bands playing that night, because I think he was also on track, like the Heartbreakers. And this kid wanted to sing with Shaky, and that was Levi Dexter. And he said, oh, do me a favor, let him sing one song with you. And Levi got up and sang something and danced around, and you know, his wild dancing. And Lee just, A, it saved Lee, because Levi was able to tell the Ted's, hey, he's helping me get, you know, get to play and sing here. So be nice to him. Don't kill him. And <laughs> at the same time, Lee got to see that Levi was a very talented young man. At least he could put on a great show. And so like the next day, he, he met with him and said, we need to put a band together. So Lee Childers really gets a lot of credit for like any success the Stray Cats had in the, in the 80s. It was Lee that saw that, yeah. envisioned that in, the, in 77. But anyway, so then he put the band together and the guys could barely play. Uh, finally, after a little while, I think their first gig was with Susie and the Banshees and and Steel Pulse, the reggae band Steel Pulse. Rock. It was a crazy bill. <laughs> you know, and, yes, I suppose it's all that rock against racism, isn't it? You know. Yeah, and plus at the Fillmore in New York and LA and San Francisco, they used to have bills like that. You could have the Allman Brothers and Miles Davis on the same bill. You know, people were just open-minded to like, I'm just going to take it all in. Great. And so then after struggling in England for maybe six months, he said, let's go to New York. I know enough people there uh, to find us a record deal. And they stayed in New York a bit. And I think they stayed in Kentucky a bit. Uh, and then they went out to L.A. and got some success in L.A. They were on two like really popular TV shows, but they couldn't get a record deal. So they split like Levi went off as a solo act and Lee managed and, and the Rockettes had Jerry had already joined them, um, they continued as the Rockettes and the guitarist uh, Dibs moved over to become the singer. So my connection is there was a young lady who 
worked for the Soho News, which was a sort of New York underground hipster newspaper came out once a week. Uh, and I met her, I think at a Devo show in 1978. And she was really cute, seemed to be connected, you know, with uh, the underground. And, and so I just never left her alone. I, I was just, you know, attached to her, much to her displeasure, I'm sure, for a while. But she had sort of hid the fact that living with her was Jerry Nolan. They had been dating. And I just sort of realized that after, like, hounding her for a few months. I think an article came out about them in New York Magazine, which was half fiction, but somewhat true. And so I would call her up, and Jerry would answer the phone sometimes. And just, oh, she's not here now. She's at work. And she would always talk about Jerry, like, this, he's the best, the best drummer in New York. And I listened to LAMF, and it sounded so terrible. You know, I mean, <laughs> LAMF just sounds terrible. But through the terrible sound, you can get a sense of there's something still exciting going on here. But also living with them on the couch was Dibs, the singer from the Rockheads. So that's sort of how I met them. And then when Jerry left, they had this other drummer for a while. It just did not work out for about six months. And within that six months, I learned to get my hair right and my clothing right to look, you know, the way it, it was important for somebody because to Because was there a lot of pressure with the Rockettes? Because in a sense, I have to say, they're the most best good-looking band you've ever found. You had Smutty <laughs> Smith. You had Tom, oh, yeah. Tom. I mean, the tattoos. I mean, you know, Robert Maplethorpe photographing yeah. them, meeting Andy Wall. Everybody wanted to photograph them because... Or Smarty yeah. Smith, you know, and 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 as you know, and you know, a kid from Essex who could barely play, just kind of getting shipped over to New York during that period. This is the, obviously we didn't even have dial-up on the computer. We didn't have a computer. We had oh, a yeah. digital sure. watch at the most, and a, and a phone box you had to get two P's for. But to suddenly becoming part of that scene so quickly for a young a young band from Essex, who weren't yeah. you know like probably. Etonians, you know, with trust fund money, kids, you know, family. I mean, they were kind of street kids. I mean, it was just must have been quite bizarre. Hearing well, for them, I mean, uh, especially those first few years where they're getting press and going on TV shows and they could barely play their instruments. I mean, that was, you know, I'm sure it was shocking. I think they thought they would always get that kind of attention. And then when they had to make records, they realized it was a lot more difficult. Because between me and Jerry, they had that other drummer, they'd gotten their record deal with Island. It was a million dollar deal. And they put them in the studio and it was just that they couldn't make decent music out of it. And that's when they realized we have to get a, a drummer who can play. Because um, that drum, I, I shouldn't say couldn't play. Yes. He just more like a, a, a drummer for the Who. He wasn't the straight ahead economical sort of player that Jerry had been. Yeah. And, um, and so that's where I came in. I could play jazz so I could play the swing that you needed in rockabilly. And I could play rock and roll enough to know it's, it's basically a snare drum on two and four, you know, almost every bar. And um, when I, you know, it was also, I guess they figured I looked good enough. I had some decent clothes. I looked like a guy from Brooklyn. They like that. Yes. Uh, and I wasn't enough of, I don't think I challenged them enough. They could still be the pretty boys up front and I could be in the back just holding the beat together. So I didn't, it, it, I, you know how like when Billy Rath came into the Heartbreakers, I think one of the things Johnny and Jerry liked was 
he wouldn't challenge them to be a star. Yes. He would stay in the background, play bass. And I think they felt the same way with me. I would shut up and I wouldn't challenge their domain up front. Because I remember there was a film 20, what is it, 20 feet from the mic. It was about the the, the role of the sidekick, you know, and the sidekick Mm -hmm. had to know that that was his position and he's not, you know, he's being employed. So it was like El Slick, who was with David Bowie. It was like, don't go and knock David Bowie off the, you know, mic. He's, he, yeah. People are here to see him and, and sort of learning that. And I know there was a member of Blondie who I think they got rid of because he used to be jumping about a bit too close oh, to David. probably Gary, Val- Gary Valentine. Yes, I think yeah. doing lots of, you know, like Pete Townsend-esque kind of yeah. stunts. And I think it was like, I think the whisper was out, like, you know, he needs to go to <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, the the band interdynamics are is, <laughs> are childish. They really are childish. It's like stuff you would argue about in school. Yes. Uh, you know, she, she thinks she's so great. He he's conceited. That used to be a big word for us in school. Oh, that guy's conceited. That girl's conceited. We we learned a big <laughs> word. And I think there's that sort of petty stuff. You know, people form their little cliques within bands. Yes. I mean, you realize that you have talk behind the back of everybody in the band you're in. And then it sort of strikes you one day, oh, they must, they probably do the same thing about me when I'm not there. Yeah. But I think sometimes, I mean, I remember did a, did an interview with a guy, it was Terry O'Neill who did lots of photography, you know, from anybody from Frank Sinatra to Elton John, especially David Bowie. And he just said that he just kept, you know, he was a real Londoner, you know, like he, he sounded, I remember when he phoned, it sounded like some gangster on the line. I was like, oh, God, what have I done wrong? And it was, oh, it's Terry, you know, and it was like, um, and he said he just kept his mouth shut and just took the photographs and didn't try to become friends with the artist. It was a bit like, I'm here to do my job. I'm not yeah. about to say, right, can I, can I come for tea tomorrow night? It was a bit like, and it was like, but a lot of people make that mistake. It's like, oh, I'm now friends with, um, you know, Frank Sinatra or David Bowie. Yeah, I get, you know, I mean, like, uh, what's his name? Bob Gruen and Mick Rock, they did ingrain themselves very much. But I think also because they were photographers, people wanted the photographer. Uh, it's, it's I th- with writers, it's a little tougher, I think. Yes. I, I, I mean, I still have it hard if, if somebody writes a bad review of my book and then tries to friend me on Facebook. It's like, fuck you. you know? it's like, <laughs> no, we're not, we're not friends. We're not friends. You're an asshole. You know, you could have asked me before you wrote those terrible things, but no, you just went and wrote them. So screw you. Yeah. So I get it. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. But so look, just with the rock acts, because that's obviously they're, they do play a major part in the musical fabric, don't they? I mean, even though they're, they're not the Stray Cats, but if it wasn't for them, the Stray Cats probably wouldn't have. I back. think so. They, I mean, the, the Stray Cats used to come to Levi and the Rock Cats and Rock Cat shows 78, 79 before they went to England. And then when the Rock Cats broke up, I know Brian went out to LA and was, what's the word? I don't know if they were courting him or he was courting them to maybe play with Levi and Levi's new band. And I know Smutty always says he had left some clothes behind and, and Brian took all his leftover clothes. And when he saw Brian on the cover of the NME, he said, he's wearing my clothes. My God, how did that happen? But yes, I do, I do think the Rockettes, it may be overstating to say, like the Dolls were to punk, the Rockettes were very much like that to the rockabilly scene that really hit late 1980, 81, 82. Yeah, there was a lot of bands like the Meteors and King Kurt and, mm. you know, 
phenomenal man of the polecats but it was kind of it was interesting because they have that kind of place in history but obviously not the record sales to go with it did you go in the studio with them at all and record much yes i played there was this ep they put on the rca called make that move i had about six songs on it and i had actually played on make that move and one more heartache and th- that was like their demo uh, and then they used that to get the record deal. And then when they got the deal, I wasn't in the band anymore. And they didn't give me any credit, but, you know. That's uh, live. And did, you work, and did you work with the producer, Mike Thorne? At any Mike Thorne, yeah. He, yeah, because he, he'd, he'd done a lot of stuff, obviously, beyond, after that, but he'd done stuff with Soft Cell. So was that quite an interesting experience? Because this was probably your first time in the studio. Um, yeah, we had only done, like, demos and rehearsals in the studio before that. And... Yeah, Mike had some great ideas. He, like, first of all, he put three microphones on the snare drum, including one inside the snare drum. Had to take the, the, the skin off. They somehow or another wound it through the little hole, taped it in there, and then they put the skin back on. But he had ideas like, you know, like Make That Move was originally more like Runaway Boys. It was a swinging eighth note thing, da 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 And he said, let's straighten it out. Let's straighten it out. And it was more like like dancing with myself or something, that sort of rhythmic. Right. So it did attract some attention. It got them the record deal, which helped. Yes. Um, but it wasn't a hit. You know? No. And yeah. they, they record sales never, <laughs> never, no. never did yeah. sort of. So then what, what was your next musical? Your next musical one was Beat Rodeo, wasn't it? Well, actually, I played with Tim Scott, who was in the, the, the earlier incarnation of the Rockettes. And he was on that live record we did and he got this deal with Richard Goddard because he was, he was dating Jane, uh, Jane Weaveland from the Go-Go's and Richard had produced the Go-Go's. And so I guess she introduced him to Richard and he sort of auditioned some of his songs on acoustic guitar. And he said, Oh, this guy's good. So he did a deal with him, sort of his manager producer. And he tried a few people in a few bands and then ended up calling me and I went out to LA and did some demos and they uh, wanted me to join the band. But it really was like playing for a solo artist. It wasn't like being in a band. But yes. And we, yeah, we did this crazy record that had a different point of view for every other song. Um, but Swear actually, Swear got covered by Sheena Easton. Yes. Which was crazy. This so is I quite... did that for a while, yeah. So you were on the original, you were on the single Swear. Yeah, the original Swear. Fantastic. And, you know, we were just, we wanted... Yeah, there was like Simmons drums and electronics. It's just yeah, let's we want everything. Let's 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 try all the weird stuff. Because I think it was very much a reaction against rockabilly. So then you you know you're young enough, 22 years old, to to jump all over the place. I don't think you really find yourself at that age. You start searching. Yes. Um, yeah. So we did that, and, and then I ended up in Beat Rodeo in like '85. It was odd. The drummer before me in Beat Rodeo was this guy Mike Osborne, who was joined the Rockettes after I left the Rockettes because he had been playing with Tim Scott, who I replaced. So it's just like me and Mike so many times. I remember once running into him in a record shop in New York in the late 80s, and we were just talking and, and leafing through the 99-cent bin. And like one of my records and one of his records were right next to each other. And we just looked at each other and go, yeah, we're never getting beyond the 99-cent bin. Yeah. <laughs> You got to share a, a deep moment. Yes, a deep, deep moment. A deep so, moment. Um, so Beat Rodeo, that was for the 80s. Yes, I joined them in 85. 
they had already recorded their album with Richard Goddard. Oh, actually, I'm sorry, they recorded it with the, the guy who had produced the second REM album. And I'm sorry, his name escapes me at the moment. But Richard did like two songs with them and um, the single. And then I joined them, went on the road with them. And then we did, I did the second album with them. And, you know, again, it didn't really sell. I mean, I have uh, yeah, a series of records that didn't sell any records. That's my, my you know, my legacy <laughs> in the music business. Yeah, just briefly before the talking about the book, but you do the Rocket Rock Cats um form reform again for a few more shows and were you part of that experience yeah i did this one in 2008 when um it was like legends of rockabilly or something in austin which i thought was hilarious <laughs> uh you know i'm let call me a legend and you know they we were just on the bill with a zillion other bands and the, the funny thing to me was in 1981 or so we were really loud and uh, not very traditional. But in 2008, compared to the other bands on the bill, we sounded like the Sun Sessions. I mean, we were just, I couldn't, I said, what happened in 35 years? How did this happen? You know, we're like the old guys who sound like the Sun Sessions. Um, so we did that. And then there was the big an economic downturn of like 09 and oh, 10. Yes. So there was like, you know, we thought we would play more gigs and like there just wasn't the demand for it. Then it peppered, picked up again, like picked up again, I'm going to say 2012 or so. But we, did, we did another show. I think Dibs, oh, Dibs, the singer, he lives in this, outside of Philadelphia or in Philadelphia and met this guy that has this record label, which is, uh, he'd done like Robert Gordon, a lot of Roots Rock stuff. So he was willing to do a record with us. So we went and did another show in 2012 and then recorded this record sort of half-assedly. Yes. I mean, it sounded better. We just, I, I don't want to sound like sour grapes. It just, it was not really a lot of rehearsing involved. <laughs> we would like rehearse it and then record it. And, you know, that drove me crazy. I hated doing it. Yes. Uh, I, I think that's somebody wanted it that way, so we did it. And then in 2013 or so, when the record came out, we played Viva Las Vegas, which is some giant festival in Las Vegas. Like four days of like rockabilly bands and tattoos and hair grease. Yes. It was fascinating. I didn't know this world existed still. Well, I know in Vegas they do something called uh, the Punk Bowling Festival, which I was there one year and I thought, God, there's a lot of punks. And then I saw this poster and it's like, Okay, punks and bowling, you know, that was kind of this kind of thing down in Fremont, the Fremont Street area. And there was all these bands from, you know, the 70s and 80s, you know, mostly bands that I didn't even know were still going, but obviously we're on that kind of circuit of nostalgia festival circuit and people just, you know, having that name on, on the lineup. And if they could vaguely get, a, you know, visa and could vaguely stand up for sort of 60 minutes, they were on the bill. So that was good. Yeah, they still do. They stand up, yeah. <laughs> you know, in some yeah. cases, they are a little bit sort of sh shaky now. Well, I keep track of all the people I interviewed for my book who are dead, and I think it's up to 20. Yes. That's, <laughs> so, so just before the book, I mean, so with the, the music scene from the 80s, is it the case then that you decided to go into other sort of like television, basically? 
Yeah, to, to make it quick, yeah. I mean, I started playing with this old friend of mine, George Usher, who had this band, House of Usher. And I thought it was the best record I ever made and the best songs and the best playing. But we, we got a publishing deal. We just couldn't get a record deal. And this was like 89, 90. And I turned 30 and I just said, I, I can't do this anymore. I just can't do this anymore. And in a, in a, a sense, if we had stuck it out maybe another couple of years, because I remember saying to him when I left the band, I said, George, I love your music and I've known you for years. It's great. But, you know, nobody cares about four guys that just play their music. And of course, then grunge came along a year later, which was just like guys in flannel shirts just playing their music. So what the hell do I know? Um, you know, probably if we had stuck it out, maybe we would have gotten a record deal, but say la vie. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I moved to the West Coast. I, I was working for my dad, just, you know, accounting sort of stuff. and Just realized I didn't want to stay working for my dad. And I went to the West Coast. I went to Seattle. Um, and it was really before grunge. I mean, people, when they realized I moved to, New to Seattle in 91, they go, oh, what, did you come out here because of grunge? I said, no, I really, I didn't know about grunge until like two days before I left New York. I was right. packing up stuff and MTV was playing in the background and, and Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit came on. I said, oh, this is that, that Seattle thing. This is pretty good. Okay. I, this reminds me of the, of the replacements, actually. Yeah. That's what I was thinking of. Um, but, you know, I had no interest in playing music anymore. Well, I, I sold did, everything. Yeah. And, and having done this show for nearly four years, I, I noticed that most bands have a five-year narrative. You know, five really intense years, possibly four. You know, they get together. You know, this is in the 80s. So in the UK, there was a lot of people who were unemployed and they had various things like the Job Seekers Allowance. You know, they get single. We had a DJ called John Peel. He would give it a play. He'd get the John Peel session. The producer was Dale Griffith of that, that particular yeah, sh that, show for a long period of time. So a lot of people got to meet Dale. Drummers loved him because he was a drummer. Everyone else mm -hmm. had a bad time with Dale, but he still made a good <laughs> sound, you know, because they had sure. a Dave to do it. They would do the first album, and then it was often the second album, which was the classic, you know, cliche, or the third. But also sure. in the UK, mostly, uh, the other thing is, most people will say, you know, we went to America and then we came back and split up. And it's like, but what happened? And it's like, oh, it was just too much. It just did us in. And, and sort of 90% of bands seem to do that. You know, America finished them off, you know. Yeah, well, it's so big. I mean, it's not like, and I, I've never, I've never even been to England, but I've toured in France and Spain and a little bit in Sweden, Italy, and you know, it's 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 a a, a hard trudge. But in the states, um, you know, there's no. It's not like you had the NME and sounds and you know Melody Maker just putting out stuff every week, and, and yes. you could get drawn into that and putting out indie records. You know, people would be interested in singles. That was really just really hard to break through that in the States. I think it got a little easier by the mid-80s when there was a college rock and you had these booking agents that knew how to book a band around the country. But like you get to St. Louis, which is like smack in the middle of the country, and there's nothing till you hit Las Vegas if you keep going west. And Las Vegas, is, it's just like barren land, desert, Las Vegas, desert you know it's just like a blip if you yeah. stop there and there's nothing till you get to la i mean there's this vast wasteland and you know not to go too far off a tangent but i think 
the Northwest, we'd never go to the Northwest. Any band I was in that did touring, the Rock Cats, Beat Rodeo, we'd never go. You'd get to like Northern California, Ukiah, and then you'd just turn right back around or you'd go east. Yeah. And if you, if you went west across the north of the country, maybe you'd get to like Minnesota and then you start going south. You just didn't go to like Idaho and Seattle. And maybe that's why there was this giant untapped scene in like 1990 because they had been left to themselves. Yes, to, this is quite interesting. Isn't it? Yeah. So, um, so that yeah. So you, I was just going to say you'd you'd done sort of ten years, and and not, okay. the other thing is most people have got sick of each other within the band, and also <laughs> there, there was a there, there was a huge la- there was also a huge lack of money. However much people looked at it, it was like the bank account was still looking as bad, if not worse, than they did ten years before. Apart from they were still sleeping on you know. Yeah, Friends, I mean, when girlfriend. you're 18 or 19, you can handle sleeping on somebody's couch. But when you're about to hit 30, yeah. and you realize, I've done this for 10 years, you know, the, like to struggle to get a gig at Max's, it's just like, I don't want to do this anymore. It's not so attractive. And I remember playing shows like at the Pyramid in New York, and like you'd look at the crowd, and go, who are these people? I don't, I don't relate to them. They don't relate to me. It, why am I doing this? If I, if I can't make a lot of money or get something, you know, some security out of this, I just can't, I can't do this anymore. I can't do it anymore. Yes. That's, that's, yes. I think, I think 10 years is, unless you're somewhere in the region of Sting or Bono, then I think most oh, people yeah. just. Making, you know, Sting and Bono sort of money or, you know, making those kind of records and living that life. Yeah, I can understand you could take a year off and you could you could even keep smiling at the drummer's jokes or the bass player's jokes you know it was fine but look That's then true. so coming up to the current day um because i just love my rock rock films rock doc- documentaries and rock books so then slightly going then back so what gave you the idea to do a book on jerry nolan what was the kind well, of moment that you you woke uh, up and still thought it was I a good think idea it was so I came to Seattle, worked in the TV world for a while, and you know, got sort of mid forties, and it's like, all right, I'm a nine to five guy now, and not really doing anything much different today than I had done a year before, and I'll probably do a year from now. And so I thought I always I read it all those rock bios and watched all those documentaries i wanted to do something like that and i came upon i said what you know the dolls have reformed this is like 2004 and there's been books about the dolls and books about thunders why can't there be a book on jerry i mean i'd seen you know there's a zillion books about anyone and everybody who made a record or was in a band and so I started to do it really slowly, just start to interview people, thinking that it would be more of a uh, uh, an oral history. Yes. And I think I was just sort of afraid to really write. And then I, I found an agent. It took me a few years, like seven or eight years, and somebody said, you should go come to this um, these writers conventions they have around the country because because agents come and you can pitch to an agent so i basically took like a two-day workshop on how to pitch and went and pitched to like 10 or 11 agents and i think all but one were interested they said all right send me a a, 
proposal. And then I had to find out what a proposal was. I, I'd never written a proposal. So then I worked on, did a proposal. And interestingly enough, the agent that ended up signing me said that he found it, in, he, his interest was because Jerry Nolan had worked with Johnny Thunders and he had been a replacements fan and the replacements sang about Johnny Thunders. So that's, to him, that's the only reason he gave it like more than two seconds of attention. Right. And so, you know, he was my agent and I immediately had to rewrite the proposal. I mean, you know, writing a book proposal, it's not something you do in a weekend. It will take you like three to six months. You have to do a lot of research. Um, and you'll write one proposal and then you'll write another set of proposals. And I think when he signed me, the first thing he did, did was say, well, now we need to write a new proposal. <laughs> so he sent me some, here's, here's some that are pretty good. And uh, he said, just basically steal the format, which I did. Yes. And then he tried to shop it as an oral history and there was like no interest. People, even the, the editors who had interest said, you know, I I'd signed like that Arthur Kane book and as great as I thought we could, we didn't sell any books, you know. So he said, my professional opinion is you need to turn this into a narrative or just hang it up, forget it. And did you, and did you at that stage kind of go into a bit of a fright thinking? Sure. Yeah. I said, oh my God, this is all, it's not going to happen. Um, But I I think it was because I had the security of a real job, I could just do it. It was a lark in a sense. You know, this was a way to take my middle-aged, boring suburban life and, and create an adventure. Yes. And so I just, he said, great thing is when you write a nonfiction book for a proposal, you only need a chapter, maybe two. Whereas with fiction, you, you need to present your whole book. Proposal. So I said, okay, I can write one chapter. What the hell? And, and then he, he had been an editor himself. So he edited it and gave me uh, some pointers and red marked it and then rewrote it. And then he got, we got like three offers, not big money offers. No. That's the great thing about having an agent. I mean, look, you can put out your book. You can self-publish. You can do that. But if you can get an agent, it's worth the percentage you give them because they know who is interested and how to sell it to them. And they know once they get more than one, they can play a little bit of a bidding war. So it's yeah. not like I got so much money that I could retire. But by the time it was over, the money had tripled. So, Yeah. Find an agent, it's worth it. Find an agent. But look, so so it's, it is quite, because it's interesting. There is a publisher, he says, looking at his book, who all their books are um, Jawbone, Jawbone Publishing. They're all, oh. all, they're all sort of oral histories, I've noticed. They're, all, they're like someone's done lots of interviews and then they've just made the chapters, stuck it in. So then putting together something like this, did it? was it a little bit frightening to get the story right, because obviously some bits are going to be easy, some bits are a bit tricky, but there's going to be a lot of people out there going, oh, actually, that's not oh, right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, the, I, I, look, I know all the, all the errors in my book. You don't have to tell me. I know them. I keep a list. And in case the book ever sells enough and they do a second printing, I, I said, here's the... But it's like I called the Minneapolis State Fair the Minnesota... Oh, I called it the Minnesota State Fair the Minneapolis State Fair. It's a state. Minnesota's a state. Minneapolis is not a state. I should have got that right. Um, Jonathan Paley, I said he came from Boston. He, did, he came from Brooklyn, and we actually talked about it because we both went to the same school for a while. Um, 
and it he really just lived in Boston for a while. So I know those are two mistakes I will own up to. I know. Yes. And um, but getting all the story, I mean, I, you know, it's it kind is of, scary though. It is scary because it's it's like etched in stone now. Yes. And people will argue with you over some little bit. And I go, this is the way I saw it. And this yeah. is what these people told me. Like when Jerry got stabbed at Max's Kansas City, first of all, Please Kill Me puts it in 1979. It did not happen in 79. It was more like 75 or 76 because Richard Hell was there. Richard Hell was still a heartbreak. But I, I interviewed several people and no one can give me the same story. They say, this guy drove Jerry to the hospital in the cab. No, this guy went with Jerry to the hospital in the cab. No, Jerry didn't get stabbed. He fell on glass while he was fighting with somebody. I mean, and these are people who mean well. They're not lying. It's just that's how they remember it. Yes. So there was a lot you of have to it. accept, like, this is how people remember this thing 30, 35, 40 years later. Yeah. And present it as such. And were you, and I mean, obviously you'd sort of met him and sort of was around that scene. So that kind of is a, is a great sort of starting point but then getting you know the narrative and all because it's quite a murky story isn't it I mean when I was reading you know the book um in the last couple of days what was quite quite amazing is that that story just couldn't be told you know just would not happen now would it I mean the amount of drugs the amount of abuse the amount of death I mean you just can't see Taylor Swift Ed Sheeran and whoever all just kind of (laughs) popping you know taking lots of heroin and um stabbing each other it just well they would go they would go into rehab and then have their great comeback yeah it's like behind the music VH1 I don't know they I'm sure they play in Britain it's not I don't know what network but you see this typical vh1 behind the music one hour documentary with a commercial every 15 minutes that's basically the story the rise you know from obscurity to be successful booze and alcohol the fall and then you know rehab and then the great comeback yeah it's the same story with everybody just about it is Um, (laughs) apart from apart from these guys and it's just because it is a it is a quite a tragic tale i mean that's what really kind of got me and and sort of i mean to make it even more interesting that's not even more but you know the uk tour of them coming around with the sex pistols on this massive tour ish um that all gets basically cancelled apart from a few dates and the fact that there's so lack of money and then there's lots of girlfriends and lots more drugs and you know lots of kind of stuff that that's kind of involved it it, there's quite a lot of responsibility you know being the writer getting this story you know because actually you know like the mistakes you mentioned it's like you know that's just unfortunate we all you know we all yeah that's a typo whereas you you know the whole other business is a bit yeah you've got to get it right otherwise I suppose you could kind of upset or get sued I suppose well I tried to well luckily luckily most everybody's dead so nobody can sue me (laughs) um Cashback. I was careful when I wasn't sure about something. I did say sort of, well, I know A is true and I know B is true. Therefore, there's a good chance C is true. I said that a few times. Yes. I, not literally like that, but that's what I said, you know, in, in a nutshell. I mean, you'd never know exactly what everybody says at any time. When people like relay conversations they had on the phone with Jerry. You know, you know that they're somewhat, it's just by their memory. I, I mean, Lee Childers would tell me things. I'm sure it didn't exactly happen the way it did. It was just Lee liked to be dramatic telling the story. So, you know, what, what can I use from that and not <laughs> sound like this is a complete, you know, bullshit? 
like you know, he, Lee always said that Jerry told him he was at Pearl Harbor when the Japanese attacked. Now Jerry wasn't even born then, but he did live in Pearl Harbor in the late fifties. I'm going to say fifty. I think. I'm going to say 56, 57, I could be wrong, which is 16, 17 years after. So he probably told Lee, yeah, I lived in Pearl Harbor. And Lee just saying, who already had this fractious relationship with Jerry to say, oh, it's just another Jerry lie. And by the time he told to someone else, it's Jerry told me he was at Pearl Harbor. Can you believe that? Right. Yeah, I know. But Jerry did tell people plenty. He was a heroin addict. And addicts lie. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> why that should that's not a why is that a surprise to some people? So when you I mean, being this being this this being your first book, I mean as you were sort of writing it, did you as you were getting into the groove of it, did you then think, oh now I need to go back to the beginning and rewrite it because now I'm feeling a bit more confident in being able to tell well, the story? There was plenty of rewritings. I there must have been I must have gone from beginning to end through the book ten times. Rewriting right. portions of it, and so like when you finally get a, a publishing deal and you present your your draft or manuscript, then they read it, figure out who would be a good editor for this guy to work with. That takes six weeks, and then they come back and make you rewrite it all over again. In a sense, um, so yeah, it's it's endlessly rewritten and rewritten and fine-tuned yes yeah and but and, at the end like when you say you got when you've got to deliver in like two days then it's insanity you just like let all sorts of stuff go <laughs> i don't care anymore i just I, yeah, i've done that a hundred times i'm moving on you know <laughs> yeah it is, like, it is really something i mean doing i mean because you were also part of you know you were there at the same time did you you must have sort of also been able to uh, be quite empathetic to that scene of, you know, the, the sort of drugs, the heroin, seeing these characters like from Sid to Nancy to the whole, you know, the whole kind of grubbiness of it. So that must have given you a very good insight when, when sort of trying to write this and trying to tell the story and trying to convey what it was really like. Well, yeah, I'd been to Max's Kansas City. I'd been to CBGB's. Um, and I traveled around the country in bands. So I, I knew some of those places. I knew some of those cities. I had had some like residual uh, interactions with people because of Jerry. So it wasn't completely foreign. Uh, it wasn't like I wrote a book about Ponce de Leon, you know, or George Washington. Or, you know, yeah. This was somebody who lived in my time, who experienced a lot of things I experienced. And so were that, you, yeah, that helped. And the discovery, I mean, there, were there were there many moments or times within the book that you discovered things that were quite shocking? Yeah, sometimes it was just in the emotions uh, that it elicited. I mean, I, that, that's what I look for. And yeah, I like the poetry of words, most writers do. But when something can really put across a, an emotion that you just feel in your gut, you know that's there's some value in that to share, to write about. And sometimes it was just um, in in about 1989 or 90, I remember Jerry had played with Sylvain in New York. And there was this guy he was living with who may have played in the London Cowboys for a bit. There were these two brothers, the 
the Wasifs. I forget. There's like Peter and Paul. I forget who was who. But one of them told me like he had been like on a three day bender with Jerry, and he just realized like I need to stop doing this or I'm gonna be dead. And he was going into rehab, and um, he asked Jerry to go with him, and and Jerry just said no, I just I can't run anymore. You know, this is who I am. You know, Jerry was 44, 45. He just like, this is who I am. And, I, and it, in retrospect, Jerry probably, he already knew he was HIV positive. And he probably just said, I'm going to be dead within the next couple of years. And I, there's just no reason for me to make any sort of difficult major change in my life because I'm a walking time. And that, I remember hearing that, and that, like, that really struck such a, a sad reality yes. and, and, and I, you know a lot of people try to make Jerry as a hero I remember tossing out ideas for the name of the book and it was you know one of the ideas was calling it Born to Lose because really every band Jerry was ever in they fell apart it just exploded and any success really came after it was over uh, you know, the Dolls, the Heartbreakers, Johnny Thunder Sid, you know catastrophes, all of it. punk rock all came after Jerry. He didn't really get a payoff out of it. And uh, but people say, oh no, you can't call Jerry a loser. That's so, he wasn't a loser. Yeah, he was. He really was. He was. It's yeah. sad. He was a loser. I, and not, you know, people think of a loser as some sort of sad sack guy who deserves what they get. And it's that's not what I mean. I just think life did not turn out for Jerry the way he wanted it. And, and that to me is something that I'm really interested in is how do people continue on with life when they know their dreams will never come true? What do they do then? And some people re recreate themselves and find something else to find value in. Um, and some people just can't do it. And I think Jerry was one of those guys that just could not do it. Yes. Off that train. I know. It's quite, yeah, it's quite an interesting one, that concept. Because because the other thing is that, that you kind of realise, and you must have done it, especially with all those interviews as well, is like some people have that ability to almost stand back and survive. You know, some of the members of the Rolling Stones, I remember thinking, they were, you know, they were kind of there, but then they could step back quite quickly and go, no, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with this, whereas Brian didn't. And certain, you know, you can see through the history of rock, you know, there are people who can just go full, full on and then pull out. Whereas when you see interviews with Jerry or Johnny and people, you know, there's something quite like, God, they are quite tragic, aren't they? There's, there's something that's not going to happen. They're not going to survive, are they? No. You know, it's like when, when like Sid Vicious died, you can then look back and go, was this really a surprise? The guy died at 21. Uh, Keith Moon. I mean, yeah, Keith Moon had a good 15 or so years as a member of The Who, but he still was like 35 or something when he died. Thunders was 39. Yes. Um, but, you know, like some people will go back to school or they'll get a straight job, you know, and get like a certificate in something. Or they just realize there's other things in life that they have to do or can do. And uh, it was just a good friend of mine in New York. We, we, had, we had talked about what he called bellboy moments. 
And if you know the Who's record, Quadrophenia, there's yes. the bellboy. And the bellboy moment is like where Jimmy, who worships Ace, you know, Sting, Sting in the movie, who is the best dressed guy and the best dancer and gets into all the clubs and everybody wants to watch him and be like him, he realizes he's just a bellboy. You know, he, people just abuse him and talk down to him and he's, you know, running, chasing after people all day. And, you know, this friend of mine said, you know, those bellboy moments are tough, like where you're delivering something for some crappy job you have in New York and you run into somebody said, didn't I see you playing at Max's last week? Or, what do you, do? you know, I'd seen, I remember seeing guys working in sandwich shops who I'd seen playing drums. And I, I realized this is very, this is tough for them. And, and Jerry just could not do that. There was this one scene in the book where he's living in Sweden with his uh, Swedish wife and she, she used to do some sort of marketing and there are these flyers that he, she said, you know, she had, he, she had to go away and work. Says, can you just like go up and down the streets and just put them in every mailbox and stuff. And his, she's away and Jerry's friend comes by and he goes, what are this, this pile of papers on this, these flyers Charlotte wants me to put out. She goes, I can't do that. Somebody might see me. You know? And they went out in the middle of the night and did it. And plus threw out like half of it. They just, just couldn't do it. And Charlotte never knew that. I told her that. Oh, so it's so disappointing. You know, I'd have to tell her. But that, you know, people, it's typical. You experience that, the struggle to, to be something and do something you want to be. And then when you're not that person, how do you adjust? And some people can't adjust. You know, yes. Just, and with all the people you interviewed, were, were there many or any that were bitter to Jerry or bitter about Jerry or well, felt like they'd been a bit, not abused, but sort of, yeah, he'd done... I think every girlfriend <laughs> had some negative things to say. And then when they saw it in print, they go, oh, you made me sound like so angry and bitter. I go, it's kind of what you told me, you know. Well, you were asking the questions. <laughs> you asked the questions. Uh, you know, I did put in that you loved him and he loved you and they were good things. Um, but he did rob several girlfriends. Yes. <laughs> uh, and he lied to them. And there's no way to beat around the bush with that. Um, you know, but Lee, Ch I thought it was interesting. I interviewed Lee Childers three times. And I had known Lee when I was in, in the Rockettes, even though they had split, he was no longer the manager. If he was in New York, he would come to shows. And he was just wonderful. I loved Lee. Um, and I interviewed him like in 2006 and like 2007 or 8. And then like a year or two before he died, I'm going to say 2013, give or take. Um, and by the last interview, he was much more forgiven of Jerry. The first interview he was like, Jerry was a liar. Jerry was a thief. Jerry was the worst experience I ever had as a manager. And then by the end, he, he, had, and he, he could have told me this earlier on, and maybe he invented this in his mind as the years went on. He says, it wasn't until Johnny died that Jerry and I became friends. Could, could, it's like we could put everything past us and realize we had shared this experience and that we really loved each other. And he used the, the, that phrase, we really loved each other. And, and we realized we had always been fighting 
over the affection and attention of Johnny. And that the only real positive out of Johnny not being around now is we didn't have to worry about that. Right. Which is really beautiful to me. I mean, it was, it was, uh, the emo like I said, you know, the emotional highs that I could find in an interview, that to me is worth the interview. Some people like interviewing Richard Lloyd in television, it was like pulling teeth. The guy would just run off on all kinds of crazy tangents and stuff. And then he would say something, I'm so glad the tape machine is running that I got that. Um, getting, the, getting the gold, you know, it's, it's like the thing. <laughs> interviewing somebody and getting that gold. It's like, thank you, Lord, you know, for forgiving me. Yes, absolutely. So does that mean, because this has obviously been fantastically well received and I've, you know, just loved, you know, reading it. I have to say, you know, I have read it hadn't actually started from the beginning, I'll confess. But I did, so I haven't just got it, but I did love reading a little bit about um, the London bit and the whole tour and, and just being a bit shocked with the amount of heroin going on. Because most people I've interviewed from that scene slightly brush, brush past it, really. You know, they don't quite talk about it in the sort of the depth that your book has mentioned it, really. I guess if it's a person who wasn't an addict, I could, I could understand, like... Uh, Johnny Rotten in his books really only talks about heroin a couple of times and when he talks about Sid and Nancy. Um, but he was never an addict. You know, there are people who tried it a couple of times and there are people who became addicts. Yeah. He wasn't an addict. Um, but one thing I, I think I mentioned it in the book, and I, I, you know, Rotten, it's like if you read his first memoir, what, No Irish, No Blacks, No Dogs, whatever that one. He says Jerry Nolan lied and said that he turned him on to heroin. He used the word lie. And then his next, then in the interim before his next book came out, Anger is an Energy, I reached out to him to try to get an interview. And at first through that guy, John Rambo, I don't know if you, he was oh, like God, his, yes. his minder manager, uh, football hooligan, you know, thug. thug. Um, first they were sort of interested, they were finishing up some things and, and then he just wouldn't do it. And they'd even threatened me with a lawsuit of some sort. It was just ridiculous. I, and, and I said to them in some of my, I sent them some faxes because they said, you know, I think they might have said to make your request officially through fax. And I had a few quotes and questions. So these are the kind of things I wanted to talk about. And then, then, then they were turned off. And they said, you're trying to blackmail him. I go, what are, you, what are you talking about? Because <laughs> he had said when that Sid and Nancy movie came out, Johnny was very upset because they never reached out to me to get my input. And I said, so now I'm doing this book about somebody who had interactions with John. I'm reaching out to you to get your input. He said, well, you're, you're threatening us. What do you mean? It's ridiculous. <laughs> ridiculous. Yeah. And, but he had, so then the first book, he said Jerry was a liar. He'd never done that. And in the second book, he said, Everything exactly as Jerry had said. He says, yes, he did turn me on to it. I tried it. And I figured because he was Irish, I could trust him. How do the twain meet? You know? And so I'm, I kind of, I take responsibility for getting him to change his story. I will, I will take that responsibility. Because the, it didn't make sense what he said. Yes. And he never said, I always, you know, I think he owed Jerry an apology. 
I think he did. He called him a liar. And then he came out afterwards. And he didn't say, you know, I was wrong in that other book. I went back and spoke to some people. This is what happened. He just presented it completely differently. A contrary champ. Yeah. He is very contrary. Yeah, so I was just going to say, with this success, are, are you tempted then to follow up with another book? Yes, but I was actually approached by someone who wanted me to um, help musicians write their memoirs. And I just didn't really have the interest in it. And I was approached to write liner notes for um, the DVD Blu-ray release of this Johnny Thunders gig that, uh, with, when he was with Sylvain and Jerry in Spain. They run a TV show. And I said, frankly, I appreciate it, but besides looking good, it was a terrible gig. And I just can't give you a thousand words about why you should buy this DVD because it's really not a good gig. Um, but I have recently, I was asked to contribute an essay on Jerry for a book about punk drummers. So I'm working on that short essay. But actually, the, I'm working on a book uh, about sort of loosely based on my dad. And so it has nothing to do with music, but he also spent a little time in jail and was a person who wanted to be a writer and never could be a writer. I realized, that's when I realized I'm interested in people who are the stories of people whose lives don't pan out. How do they respond? That to me, I'm fascinated by that. And maybe I won't be after I write this book. Yes. So the idea of writing another music book doesn't really interest me. Although, like if David Johansson came to me and said, I really like that book about Jerry. Could you help me write my bio? Yeah, I would probably do that. I would do that. Yeah, absolutely. That's interesting to me. Yes. Blimey. So look, just and just last question. I mean, if you could have said something to a, an 18-year-old self starting out, what would you what what little bit of advice, oh, little uh, nugget of him, you know, that you'd say, yeah, just right. check this out, kid. Um, don't let your emotions take you. Be be very clear in your expectations with people, but try not to hold grudges. I think a lot of at least for myself, I think when I, you know, leaving the Rockettes and leaving them with Tim, I think I really held grudges and I felt it very hard to articulate um, what I was upset about. I would just sort of brood and, you know, try to destroy things from behind the scenes, perhaps. And I don't think that's helpful. I think you should keep your mind open to different ideas. You're, you're in a band, so there's a team of people. It can't be you running the show all the time. And to try not to hold grudges and, and try to articulate what's on your mind. Yes, God. And, and don't take drugs. Don't take drugs, yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yes. Most people say the drugs, or try to enjoy yourself at the time, but then yeah. in the, at the time, it's all too intense, isn't it? It goes so, you know, when you're 21 and you find out something is not going to go the way you want and you're 22, it's like that year felt like a million years. And now you look back on it, it goes, it was just from 21 to 22. My goodness, I couldn't like just shut up and be, you know, go with the program for a year. No, 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 not at all. No. Well, look, thank you ever so much. And thank you for this time. And, I'm, and when I do put this together, I can always send you a link so you can use it wherever. But, sure. um, but I, I thank you. I love the book, by the way. I oh, really, you. you know, has been a real... Page Turner. I know that's such a cliche, isn't it? Well, it's interesting because normally I sort of get, I go, you mentioned rock discography. I quite like books about 
generally a music scene, but not particularly on, about one artist. But actually, this one has has been you know has been quite gripping. Actually, it's like you know what it's like. You sometimes think after a while, actually, I'm not that interested in this person, unless it's David Bowie. Then obviously I am. Sure. But but um, no, I've really really enjoyed this one, and it's well, been. I think it's because the story is is almost Shakespearean in places, isn't it? Really, it is a tragedy. You know. There is no bit where you go, you know, even though the music's dreadful and they're not together, they're personal, you know, it's just, it just keeps writing itself, doesn't it, really? That was helpful. <laughs> I could interview people and they basically would write the book for me. Yeah, it was, so, it was a perfect. Well, thank you. Thank yeah. you for this opportunity. Okay, well, look, thank you ever so much and have a great day and great year. You too. Take care of yourself. See you. Bye-bye. And that is how you say goodbye. Also, that is the end of the interview with Kurt Ice, a one-time member of the um, drummer with the Rockats and also Beat Rodeo. We probably talked about that in the interview. And also the book. Okay, let's find out more about this. Um, titled Stranded in the Jungle, Jerry Nolan's Wild Ride. This is available from Backbeat Books, available from All Good Bookshops, and also online, let's face it. Anyway, this is... Uh, I'll probably say my name several times already, David Eastall, The C86 Show. Um, you can contact me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, do C86 Show. And also, these have all been archived. Indeed, they have. So you can find the, these, um, look for them on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, C86 Show. Anyway, have a great week. <laughs>